Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash. Hi, everybody. I'm Sina Gaznavi, and my co-host Justin Williams and I are working with the team from Last Podcast to the Left to launch a new show called Fraudsters. That's right. We're like the Hall of Shame for scammers. This season, we'll show you the future with Miss Cleo. Call me now for your free reading. We've got Ponzi schemes. We've got crypto fraud. We've got catfishing. This will be a perfect podcast, 100% guaranteed or your money back. Cena, I think it's free. Oh, that's right. Fraudsters, starting next week. Listen for free only on Spotify. Hello, everybody. It's your teenage girl wrapped up in a plastic bag, dead, and she has a secret dark past wizard holding McNeely and I'm your <laughs> Mersey Dotes and Dozy Dotes and Little Amsy Divey a kiddly oh, divey do wouldn't you yes Mersey Dotes and Dozy Dotes and Little Amsy Divey a kiddly divey do wouldn't you if that sounds queer and funny to your ear a little bit jumbled and jivey I sing mares eat oats and does eat oats and little lambs eat ivy wizard Jake Wow, Jake, that is incredibly impressive. I really thought you were just going to be like, I like donuts and coffee. I'm the cruiser. <laughs> but either way, we are. I'm so glad I did this to you this week by forcing you to watch this amazing TV show. And we also got a super special guest, Natalie Jean from Pop History. Thank you so much for joining us. Our, our resident uh, Twin Peaks enthusiast, um, I would say obsessed is a word I would use. Hmm. Thank you so much for being here. Natalie Jean. I feel like I know her, but sometimes my arms bend back. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's really me. (laughs) I tricked you. Hey, everybody. Just want to let you know that today's episode is sponsored by Derek Devereaux Smith, our beautiful patron. Thank you again, Derek, for the sponsor. And here is the shout out. Are you afraid of scary movies? Do horror movies cause you to spoop your pants in fright? If someone dared you to watch one, would you? If so, check out Watch If You Dare, a podcast exploring horror cinema through the eyes of a coward and the eyes of a longtime fan. 
Each episode, Aaron, a horror movie monster boy, and his longtime friend Derek, a lover of the dark and macabre, but a spooky celluloid coward, watch a new movie and then attempt to put their bony fingers on why jump scares, supernatural entities, and other phobias get under our skin. Whether you're a hardened horror expert, a casual in a love-hate relationship with scary cinema, or just a victim of a dare, join Derek, Aaron, and the occasional guest or two to face your fears. Find new episodes of Watch If You Dare on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Please subscribe, rate and review, and share. Thanks again, Derek. Have a good one. Uh... Let's. I have a tome of notes here, and I'm gonna try to not just be like Mr. Notes today because well, I think it's, here's the thing: is it, this we're t- we're going to be talking about two seasons of mainstream television, but it's the fact that it's the most poured over, heavily examined, micro observed two seasons of television ever put into yes. America's living rooms. Which which yes. is also funny because it's probably one of the most abstract TV shows that's ever existed. Mm-hmm. So. It's you can analyze it all day, but it's not going to be that structured <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> when you come to the end. Like, you're not going to have a story that's linear in any way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so let's just jump right into the gush. I, uh, Jake watched it for the first time this week, which is fucking amazing. And I can't wait for you to watch The Return because it's even more amazing in certain ways. I discovered this after college. It's something I'd really heard about being this special, amazing thing back in college, but Back then, you kind of had to, like, own the VHS tapes. I think it was actually having direct access to it via Netflix is when I finally caught it in New York and just did the thing that everybody does where you start watching it and you just can't believe it exists. You know, I I, I will say big fan of David Lynch ever since going back to college with Blue Velvet and I saw Mulholland Drive in the theater and I, I wasn't like... I wasn't David Lynch's like number one fan or anything like that, but I definitely, uh, I definitely l- love it, and I grew to love his stuff more and more. I mean, now Blue Velvet is one of my favorite movies of all time, but I th- it's just so disturbing upon a initial viewing. I think that sometimes it takes a little time to come around to it, kind of like Clockwork Orange was for me, you know. But uh, Natalie, wh- when did you first discover Twin Peaks, and what is this show for you? Well, it's funny. I actually have a very young memory of my mom watching it and the scene where the bird is dead in the cage uh-huh. horrified me. Like, <laughs> but in that way that Lynch scares you where I I, I was like, oh, I'm a, I'm disturbed, even though I didn't know what that meant as a kid. It scared the shit out of me in a way that I didn't totally understand, which but I kind of liked it. Um, so that says a lot about where we are now with me. Uh <laughs> But then I kind of got away from Twin Peaks and really got back into Lynch with like Mulholland Drive and Eraserhead. And I got really into his old yeah. like art films and stuff sure. uh, and him as a character. And then Twin Peaks came in later on and I was sort of like a peripheral David Lynch thing for me until my husband and I got together and... We started just like he was like, no, we have to we have to sit here and actually watch all the way through. And I was completely like, I don't really know if I've ever felt so delighted over a television show. before. <laughs> the the amount of like applause breaks that happen in this show where like you're just whip cracked from like surrealist expressionist imagery to like full on like dark suburban violence to actual Looney Tunes boink on the head shenanigans is incredible how they just yeah. don't give a fuck. Well, that, yes. I think, yeah, that's I think that's the true pleasure of David Lynch is that he he does this 
like he's got such a substance combined with pop pop culture to me that is just so um, intoxicating. And he's such a dark. He can do, be so dark, but he's also so fucking funny. Yes, mm-hmm. so funny. Log Lady, the best example, yeah. right, of Lynchian humor. Just amazing. But then also... Oh, I'm sorry, are you talking about Margaret? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but also, the, the, you know, we, we, we should not neglect Mr. Mark Frost either. And I yes. think that it is that combination and it is that tradition of American television that's seeped in, in, into all of this stuff. Oh, right? absolutely. That, that you wouldn't have, it, it is that special combo of, of one person who has really gotten really good at writing uh, uh, American procedural television, police procedural television shows, and then you have Lynch just throwing all this crazy stuff in, so you, it's that b- uh, bedrock that you get from Frost that makes this thing, A, just a sellable product to any television network ever, like, if without Frost, I don't think Lynch sells a TV show. But also, it is it is what makes it, I think, so wonderfully fantastic. Like, in other words, like you need, you know, you need rainy days to enjoy the sun. It's like you need that structure to enjoy when the structure just completely goes. I, I agree. I don't think David Lynch on his own at that age would have been able to pull off a television show that any normal human being could connect to on any level. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but he had put out uh, Elephant Man by that point, I believe. So yes. he had some level of critical acceptance because if yes. it was just a racer head i don't know if he would have gotten <laughs> greenlit though i do love the story of mel brooks like falling in love with the racer head and being like you're crazy enough to do it direct <laughs> elephant man yeah i love it we could have lived in a world where it just went like dune and then he just fell off the face of the earth I, yeah oh, that'd be sad 100 <laughs> percent. because that's the thing we already have a lynch that's disillusioned with the studio system coming into Twin Peaks. How could you be disillusioned by the studio system? That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, the classic, especially auteur disillusionment with the studio system. Spartacus for Kubrick, uh, you know, there's always that movie, right? So either way, uh, what were you about to say, Jake? Oh, just that, like, w- the thing about watching it, like, now, as a full-blown adult, in having, like, swimmed in all of the shows and media that this has, like, influenced is the amazing feeling that you get when you realize that the thing was really that good. Because, like, up until that point, all I knew was a bunch of, like, sexy Entertainment Weekly and Rolling Stone covers yeah. from my, like, childhood, <laughs> where it's just Lara Flynn Boyle and uh, Kyle MacLachlan looking pouty. On, you know like, what? They, they have good pouts, and I'm glad that they're sexy <laughs> on covers. Quality pouts. Mm-hmm. Incredible pouts all around from the entire cast. Uh, And, like, throw away Simpsons references. Like, my only thing going into this was, uh, you know what, Mary, uh, throw it in there. Throw in Homer Simpson watching Twin Peaks, (laughs) where it's just the giant dancing with a horse while an owl and a a traffic light look on and jazz music plays. That's damn fine coffee you got here in Twin Peaks. And damn good cherry pie. Brilliant. (laughs) I have absolutely no idea what's going on. (laughs) You know, it was just always out there. You know, the talking backwards, the Black Lodge. Mm. uh, Yeah, Agent Cooper. But all those throwaway references were just kind of like, oh, it's the weird show. Okay, whatever. And seeing it actually come together as a whole was amazing. It was jaw dropping. 
Yeah. Yeah. And Absolutely. I do. I think really um, the only way to sell a, an idea this bizarre is to be able to understand how to capture images on camera as well as David Lynch does. And like taking his his painting and his sculpture background really just made this incredible, unique director out of him that is just so well utilized in this format. And I'm so mm-hmm. happy that that show got passed through in a time that yeah. it never should have. It's so insane that it's it was on television. So I'm excited to tell the tale. I, we didn't give a synopsis. I get, I didn't even write one down. I have too many notes to do that. This is a television show that ran in the 90s. It was a, it was a crime drama set in the town, uh, the, the fictional town of Twin Peaks, a mountain town with a dark underbelly, and this girl, Laura Palmer, washes up on the shore, wrapped in plastic. She is, like, essentially the homecoming queen of the town, shall we say, like this per- Little Miss Perfect kind of thing. And they slowly pull back the layers and find out that she's got quite the, uh, quite the dark past that no one realized. And then there's also... Just a lot of other weird shit going on that I can't even begin to talk about. There's the dream sequence. I think I think before before I begin, I think that really everything really clicks in in that third episode with mm-hmm. the dream sequence. I wish I was in the room with Jake and Marie when they first watched it because it is so much fun. I mean, what yeah. did you guys what did you guys did you see that coming at all? Did you kind of know it was well, gonna Well, we knew it was coming because it's like the most iconic thing in all of Twin Peaks is yeah. the Red Room, the Black Lodge, the man from another place, all the backwards talk and all that. Um or is that episode two? Which dream I, sequence am I thinking? I thought about? it was three is the big dream sequence that really everyone remembers, but I could be wrong. I think it's three. Yeah. Okay. But like so we knew that was coming, but it's uh Everything else, so it's everything else in between that <laughs> yeah, that made us scream. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so uh, insane. It's the Nadine, the wife with the eye patch, yes. like yes. developing super strength out of nowhere. <laughs> Doctor Jacoby's <laughs> whole storyline. Yeah, Doctor Jacoby's precious coconuts. Um, <laughs> the uh, weirdness with like uh, you know Laura Palmer's cousin showing up, and it's just the same actress with a wig on, and everyone's yes. just like, yeah, it's fine. Well, you know, <laughs> you know, like that. I don't know if. You uh, read that uh, part of what's her name? Oh my God, what's the actress's uh, name? Cheryl Lee. Cheryl Lee. Yeah, Cheryl Lee. Um, she was not originally going to be in that part, but David Lynch Correct. was so captivated by her in that like flashback video that he just made mm-hmm. a character for her, and he was like, "You're going to be a cousin now." Well, and that is a great anecdote too for the whole show. It's just constantly just being like, "Yeah, sure." It it wasn't even you'll be the cousin. It was just like, I want to have you back. You'd move to L.A. And she's like, but my I'm dead. And he was like, we'll figure it out. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So let's talk about it. The man, the myth, the legend. First of all, we have to talk about David Lynch. Born in Missoula, Montana, back in 1946, his father was a research scientist working for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which is a job that had him traveling and moving the family around a lot. And this is just immediately gives you an idea of David Lynch being not like the other kids. He was like, yeah, I actually really liked it. I liked that I, I could I was really good at making new friends. I enjoyed traveling constantly and never like having roots as a child. I've like never heard anyone referred to a childhood where they had to move around a lot as like a great thing. Uh, his mother was an English language t- tutor. They raised him in Presbyterian and would eventually end up with a, he would eventually end up with a younger sister named Martha. The family moved from Montana to Idaho to Washington, to North Carolina, to back to Idaho, to Virginia. Yeah. 
So already, uh, don't think that uh, David Lynch was just like some military brat. Uh, his dad was a research scientist yes. for the Department of Agriculture. So he was moving to Spokane, to Durham, mm-hmm. to Alexandria, to Boise. And so in a shotgun blast of a childhood, he got exposed to the fact that all of suburban America is pretty much the same. And we all like to think that there's something special to it, but it's all the same ticky-tack houses. It's all the yeah. same Walmart. Well, except for his experience, if you've read about when he's a, he was a kid, he talks about a time where a, a, he, a naked crying woman came out of the forest. As a child, he was sitting on the curb. And, right. and I, I don't know if this is something that he's created in his mind as a memory, but he, uh-huh. he says that it happened to him and that he doesn't know what happened to her because he was such a young kid. He didn't know what to do, but he did have this occurrence that was basically like the framework of half of his movies. It's just like <laughs> scared nude women. <laughs> and and that, that really also is very relevant or really goes hand in hand with this quote. My childhood was elegant homes, tree-lined streets, the milkman, building backyard forts, droning airplanes, blue skies, picket fences, green grass, cherry trees, middle America as it's supposed to be. But on the cherry tree, there's this pitch oozing out, some black, some yellow, and millions of red ants crawling all over it. I discovered that if one looks a little closer at this beautiful world, there are always red ants underneath. Because I grew up in a perfect world, other things were a contrast. So, yeah, he was always obsessed with the, with the, the darkness that lay underneath, the looking deeper at the perfection to find horrors, essentially. Yeah. And he's he's also said uh, he thinks about the worst case scenarios and things a lot, which is where a lot of his stories go. And I relate to that a lot as somebody who has pretty bad anxiety issues. He probably has some level of that. He would probably never call it that, but he he thinks about wherever you are, you're like imagining the worst thing that could happen. Uh-huh. So he seems to explore that a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah I yeah. can totally see that. And yeah, he did. He did talk about how his childhood was, quote, completely fantastic, though he did absolutely despise school. He said it was, quote, a crime against young people, which is bizarre, too, that he also ended up joining the Boy Scouts, even though and he didn't say he really loved the experience. But he does end up becoming an Eagle Scout, which is very difficult to do. And uh, yeah, that is the highest rank of the Boy Scouts. And it's kind of takes your whole childhood to get to Eagle Scout. He also pursued painting as a child, and it really is his love of painting and uh, graphic art that is what leads to him wanting to pursue film. So after high school, he pursues art in college, but he did not find it to be very inspiring. And instead, he went off to travel Europe with a friend. They go, I forget the name of the guy, but they went specifically to study under one artist. Oh, are you talking about expression Austrian expressionist painter Oscar Kokoschka? <laughs> no, who, uh, someone else. <laughs> You know, the man who he had sought out because of his uh, love of surrealism and expressionist painting, uh, expecting to do a three-year apprenticeship with him. Only when he he arrived, he found out that uh, (laughs) he wasn't taking any apprentices, so they just left after 15 days. He just travels to Europe. He's like, yeah, he's just, that guy's definitely going to take me, and I'm definitely going to learn all about the art. Spooky European (laughs) painting. 
It's got chutzpah. <laughs> so he, they end up just giving up like immediately on this trip, and he ends up enrolling in the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts because his friend, who we traveled through Europe with, or went to Europe with at least, he, he was the one who recommended it, saying he found it to be a, quote, beautiful time there. And that is where he meets his first wife, Peggy, with whom he has a child, Jennifer. But also during this time, he's, A, surrounded by a lot of people that he's actually getting a lot of inspiration from. He's really enjoying his time in this art school. And he starts to get the idea of, hey, I, you know what I want? I want to see these paintings move. Mm. I would love to see this painting actually have have movement, have have physicality. He, and he, so says, he, gets, he says that he can see the paintings moving. And that was what really inspired him to. He said there's some there's a, a little hint of a story in everything that's happening in the painting. Mm. And I'm trying to make it move. So he just like physically makes it move. With a camera. So I I love the name of his first short film, Six Men Getting Sick, and then in parentheses, <laughs> Six Times. And he does that, makes that in 1967. And this leads to a couple more experimental short films, which leads him to move to L.A. and study filmmaking at the uh, um, American Film Institute Conservatory, which is where he almost quits <laughs> because he feels like they're trying to control his work too much. But then he ends up making his big breakthrough movie, Eraserhead. And this actually, we actually talked about it on Pop History. We talked, we did an episode on John Waters, and we talked extensively about the midnight movie circuit in that Mm. episode because John Waters, but also Eraserhead and David Lynch, a big part of the midnight movie movement. And Eraserhead really ends up becoming a cult hit because of that. And the midnight movie is essentially. They just started playing really weird alt movies in movie theaters as the, quote, Midnight Movie and Pink Flamingos, Eraserhead. These are groundbreakers for that whole movement and that whole scene. Now, Eraserhead, as if you haven't seen it, is a movie about a happily married couple <laughs> with a talkative husband and their very normal baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, completely normal. It won the Golden Globe Award for most normal baby in a feature <laughs> film, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> so his next film ends up essentially showing the world he can play ball. He he does The Elephant Man, and that is what makes him a critical and commercial success. It was one of his most conventional films and even got him a bunch of Academy Award nominations. And essentially, it's, it's like Eraserhead was like, I can do the art film thing. And then uh, The Elephant Man was like, I can also do the traditional thing, even though I don't exactly want to and produced by mel brooks just still just one of the funniest incidental i love it yeah and and so through the 80s he becomes disillusioned with the hollywood system while making dune which um is worth its own episode yeah and it's fascinating and it it is it is actually i think in hindsight like a, a pretty enjoyable flick but he has an awful time he feels noted to death just like he felt at the american film institute well he doesn't make he doesn't make very simple movies i don't think that he's necessarily capable of doing like a very low budget indie movie because even when he did Eraserhead, that was fully indie but it took him like for, five years yeah forever and yeah. like ruined all of his relationships and stuff <laughs> um, to yeah get yeah done. totally so yeah i, I can totally. imagine he has he clashes quite a bit with production companies 100 percent, and he wants what he wants and he's gonna take his time and he's gonna do it how he's gonna do it and so 
His next movie is Blue Velvet, and this is about a small-town boy who finds an ear in a field, which leads to uncovering a sinister underworld in his small town. And really, a lot of parallels can be drawn to Twin Peaks. Oh, yeah. Essentially, his agent was like, and we'll get to this in a little bit, but his agent's just like, can you make Blue Velvet into like a TV show, essentially, mm-hmm. which is what where we get to Twin Peaks. And it's very much the same. It's like, can you do the same thing where it's like this clean-cut Americana and then you have this this crazy story underneath it all. You tell me one difference between Blue Velvet, in which Kyle MacLachlan plays a straight-laced, uh, normal guy who discovers an underbelly of horrific sex and violence in a small town, <laughs> and Twin Peaks. Ooh, daddy wants to fuck! <laughs> <laughs> that I is the Blue worst Velvet. Dennis Hopper I've ever <laughs> I nailed it! Either way. <laughs> That's where we're at with David Lynch. Let's talk about Mark Frost before we get into the whole making of Twin Peaks. Born in New York City in the early 50s, his father was actor Warren Frost, and he was raised in Los Angeles but spent his adolescence in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, Warren Frost played the doctor. He's in almost every episode. (laughs) Yes, yeah, by the way. He went to Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh to study acting, directing, and playwriting, and while there, he worked on the production crew of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. After school, he got a couple of writing jobs on TV shows such as The Six Million Dollar Man, and his first big gig, however, was the show Hill Street Blues. And you can really see the translation here over from that show and all of its influences to Twin Peaks. It is a serial police drama which employed novel writing and filming approaches for the time, such as episodes with intertwined storylines that showed conflicts between the personal and professional lives of the characters, as well as a handheld camera approach to give off a documentary style. There wouldn't be a Law and Order. There wouldn't be yeah, a yeah, Criminal Minds. Yeah. There wouldn't be an SVU. Hill Street Blue. There wouldn't be an NYPD Blue. Hill Street Blues like, was the television procedural. And it's also just how Frost learns how to juggle multiple characters, multiple plot lines at once in an episode, having it all intertwine. He's the guy that that brought that to Twin Peaks. Like all of that foundation is all coming from Mark Frost and structure in general. Mm -hmm. Frost said, a wise man once told me that mystery is the most essential ingredient of life. For the following reason, mystery creates wonder, which leads to curiosity, which in turn provides the ground for our desire to understand who and what we truly are, which I think really is, in a way, a thesis statement for Twin Peaks. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mark Frost also brought a... uh, Are we going to get into uh, the Hazel uh, connection in his his, uh, childhood vacation home? Uh, Yes, we will get into the murder of Hazel Irene Drew, in just a little bit, I have a whole section yeah. I'm excited because I don't know a ton about that. We got to talk. We, we got to if we're talking Frost, what Frost brought to the table. This is one of my favorite favorite elements of it. What we're about to get there. Let me let me just set up a little tee up a little bit for how this show came started to come together. Initially, David Lynch is hired by Warner Brothers uh, to direct a film about the life of Marilyn Monroe, based on the best selling book Goddess, which I kind of want to read. Is it good? I'm kind of curious. If you I mean, can't it's, hand- it's a Marilyn Monroe story. It's going to be sex and Kennedys and pills. Natalie, if you can't handle me at my Hill Street Blues, you don't deserve me at my Twin Peaks. Okay. Wow. Wow. I'm getting <laughs> I'm getting cornered right now. <laughs> Jake, if you don't like me yeah, at my eraser head, then you don't deserve me at my Blue Velvet, <laughs> my Elephant Man. Right, anyway. I know you right now at Wait, your Mulholland so your, Drive. Your top is Elephant Man. That's you at your best. <laughs> That's the most tradition. I don't know. That's you have been routinely known to just yell, I'm a human being. 
in various social situations. So that's how he ends up working with Mark Frost on this goddess adaptation. And they, they, the screenplay never goes anywhere. I mean, and this is just the thing they talk about constantly. Lynch is no stranger to this, much like most people in Hollywood. Like, you end up working out a million things that never go anywhere before you end up working on the thing that goes somewhere. And there's so many of those for them at this time. Still, they form a friendship through working on this script, and that leads them to write and direct a movie called One Saliva Bubble, which was to star Steve Martin, but that ends up falling through as well. Never gets made. I've, I've uh, watched some interviews with Mark Frost talk about that show, and it sounds completely bonkers. I'm not surprised it didn't get picked up, right. but yeah, Steve Martin and Martin Short, I think, were the, the leads in the wow. show. Wow, that would have been so cool. I just would love to see Steve Martin and... Right, a Lynchian thing. Yeah, I mean, they, I actually think they would be a great match. But I mean, uh, Martin Short did make a Lynchian comedy, but it was called Clifford, and we all love it. Yes, um, I was. Like, I was also a little bummed out. At Mark Frost was talking about how they initially made contact, and I had really sort of envisioned that he and David Lynch like cross paths in some smoky bar or something. But he just called CAA. He was like, "Yeah, we both yeah. Uh, we both were under CAA." So I just uh, said. Could I have a meeting with him? I was like, oh, that's not fun. <laughs> and they sh- they shared a TV agent, too. Yeah, Tony Krantz. So it made it pretty easy to, to connect the two of them, for sure. I bet he just used that connection. So Frost said, it's hard to pinpoint exactly what makes a creative match like that persist other than chemistry and affinity. And as it turned out, over the long haul, tolerance, friendship, and success, which I think is a really great quote about collaboration. It was Lynch and Frost's TV agent, as I just mentioned, Tony Krantz, that pushed him to do a television show. But Lynch didn't want to until the agent took Lynch to a restaurant in Los Angeles called Nibblers. I don't know why that was important, but I love that there's a restaurant in Los Angeles called Nibblers. It's because David Lynch loved going to Nibblers. (laughs) And and, And said, you should do a show about real life in America, your vision of America, the same way you demonstrated it in Blue Velvet. So... Lynch goes to Frost with this concept, and reluctantly, Frost comes up with, quote, a sort of Dickensian story about multiple lives in a contained area that could sort of go perpetually. And the show was supposed to be called North Dakota. Oh, wait, wait. This, uh, I have, I have uh, insight from uh, Reflections and Oral History of Twin Peaks. Uh, their first attempt at making a show together... Uh, this is Natalie as, uh, as someone who is uh, deep in the uh, Zabrowski-verse... Uh, should probably be familiar with this. Uh, their initial pitch was called The Lemurians, which was a uh, show about FB- rogue FBI agents who had to track down ancient Atlanteans <laughs> who were walking amongst the human race in an attempt to take down the world's government cool. using homemade detection devices like Geiger counters in a kind of Ghostbusters kind of way. And people did not like that pitch. <laughs> that does sound like most of the things Henry pitches. <laughs> and yeah, nobody totally. like nobody wants them. <laughs> Tell you that. Uh, it was only after then that uh, the I, that yeah Tony Krantz came in and was like uh, yeah do the uh, blue velvet thing. You should do a show about people and all the customers pointing around at the fellow patrons at Nibblers. <laughs> <laughs> So they watch this film called Peyton Place, which I really want to check out. It follows different residents of a small fictional town in New England for inspiration, which under the veneer of things like a graduation dance and a Labor Day parade, and and it's set largely around the town's high school, there is sexual assault, abortion, and even a murder that is all happening underneath it all. And since they wanted forests and mountains, which don't exist in North Dakota, they changed the name of the show to Northwest Passage, which would end up being the name of the pilot. 
Lynch said, in my mind, this was a place surrounded by woods. That's important. For as long as anybody can remember, woods have been mysterious places. So they were a character in my mind. And then they started filling the town with people after that. And then the plot revealed itself to them. After drawing a map, they decided to include a lumber mill. Lynch said, we knew where everything was located and that helped us determine the prevailing atmosphere and that might ha- and what might happen there. And Frost said, it took us a while to solve the murder. We had to know the town before we could make up a list of suspects. Only after we knew most of its people was the killer revealed to us. By the way, we're not going to reveal the killer in this episode. Probably should have said that up top, but either way, if you're worried, that's the one thing we're not going to spoil. But we're probably going to spoil a lot of other things. After that, they caught an image of a body washing up on a lake, as well as a concept of a girl next door leading a, quote, desperate double life that ended in murder, which was inspired partly by... The murder of Hazel Irene Drew. Thunderclap, thunderclap. All right, here, I'll tell you this ghostly tale, Natalie and Jake. Back in July of 1908, in the resort community of Sand Lake in upstate New York, a 20-year-old girl named Hazel Irene Drew was found floating face down in a pond. The cause of death was a blow to the back of her skull via a blunt unknown weapon. She was last seen walking along a remote road in a heavily wooded area near the pond at night. Frost said, I'd heard stories about Hazel all through my growing up because she supposedly haunted this area of the lake. And though she she seemed a straight-laced lady at first, further investigation suggested secret love affairs shrouded in mystery, revealed through several postcards and letters she had locked in her trunk. These revealed suspects such as a dentist who had proposed to her, a train conductor she was rumored to have been secretly seeing, a millionaire who ran a nearby resort that was said to have held orgies and other strange happenings such as allegations that women were being held there against their will. I mean, that's well, straight up all, Twin in, all in Twin Peaks. <laughs> yeah. And before you think that it's like some kind of like, you know, uh, parallel thinking or whatever, uh, the story of, of Hazel Drew was actually uh, told to Frost by his grandmother when yes. uh, they would visit up there as a precautionary tale. Like, hey, don't go out to the lake or you'll end yeah. up like that dead uh, hussy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm really tired of people slut shaming ghosts. <laughs> Unbelievable. In 2020, put a mask on that ghost. Uh, either way, Frost said, I'd grown up hearing about people in the mountain who were out of the ordinary, who were a little off kilter sometimes. So I think all of those stories had an impact on my thinking about folks like this. And I definitely can remember feeling like, yeah, this is a little bit like the guy who used to live out by the sawmill. Or this is one of the hermits that I'd hear about. So, yeah, it's all about the mystery. And it's so true when you live in a town that has a wooded area around. It's like you get that deliverance vibe. You're like, there are people out there that do not play by the same rules. So much scarier to me than uh, like a city. Like a, I yeah. have no fear in the city ever, but I am terrified yeah. out in the woods. There's just nobody around. So if you're like around somebody bad, it's just so terrifying to be stuck in the dark with somebody like that. Totally. Because like when you're out in the, because when you're out in the woods, like, if you live in the, what I'm trying to say is if you live in the city, and like you're just hanging out with someone and you're just like, hey, you ever think you could imbue this wood carving of an owl with sex magic that will grant me powers to fight God? <laughs> in the city, you have at least eight people in the room going, sure. nah, man, cut that shit out. And you go, oh, shit, sorry. <laughs> but yeah. out in the woods, you just get to keep with that thought rolling. The trees go, yes, do it. <laughs> we love it. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. 
I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit CARON.org slash lost. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. So the show was was pitched in a 10 minute meeting with ABC's head of drama, Chad Hoffman, with only an image and a concept, the mystery of who killed Laura Palmer. They wanted to mix a police investigation with a soap opera and ABC orders a pilot script. Hoffman said, I figured, what the hell? You've got to take a chance on something like this. Now, this oh, is all it's because, impo- yeah, ABC I think you're about was a- getting its ass kicked yeah by what who, who what was uh big then nbc was uh the cosby show had just started uh which now in hindsight much scarier than twin sure. <laughs> uh cheers was on the air on nbc oh, they okay, were just okay yeah and abc yeah. had just lost it. it was like in fourth place or third place i guess no fox i don't know it was struggling and so they greenlit a whole bunch of very innovative shows like the wonder years and roseanne and twin peaks to kind of just like throw spaghetti at the wall, prove that they were like a different kind of network, yeah. and to attract better. Um, oh, and thirty something had just come out as well. Man, I remember so that really show wa- as a kid watching or seeing that really young, being like, "Man, those people are old, and that looks boring as hell." <laughs> and uh, I don't think I, I think maybe that pushed me to model my life in my thirties to not be like that. <laughs> No, again, if they did a show called 30-somethings now, it would just be all of us on Zoom 24-7 watching anime. (laughs) Yeah, not having jobs. Uh, Yeah, exactly. But I will say also there was a writer's strike at the time that Mm. that greatly affected their, just grew their chances because they were already dealing with a writer's strike and they needed new, fresh blood, essentially. (laughs) So the screenplay is written in 10 days, although I will say that is a fast turnaround, but they had been talking about this idea concept for so long at this point. That's why it was quick. After which, ABC orders a two-hour pilot for a possible fall 1989 series on a budget of $4 million with an agreement with ABC that they would shoot an additional ending so it could be sold to Europe as a feature film if the show wasn't picked up. This is one of the most interesting elements to me. Did you actually look it up? Did you find the secret ending? I didn't watch the secret ending, but I know they repurposed a lot of it, and it's the dream sequence. It's the Black Lodge stuff. Like they... Yeah. We'll get into the two-hour pilot, but uh, it kind of, yeah, it ends on kind of a cliffhanger with, like, a promise of more if the show gets picked up. And uh, to make it a movie, quote-unquote, it needs an ending. And it basically boils down to they bring Mike, the one-armed man, back in. And he, uh, Al Strobel, who did an amazing job. And, like, mm-hmm. he had so much gravity that, like, again, David Lynch, we'll find out throughout the entire production... It was just like, oh, I like you. Or like, oh, that's cool. Like, fuck it. We'll figure out why. But you're in the show now. Yeah, most notably with the creation of Bob. But we'll get there. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's Mike just shows up at the hospital, uh, gives his fire walk with me speech again and just says, oh, uh, I'm Bob's old friend, secret ghost buddy. uh, And Bob's in the basement and he did it. And then they go downstairs and there's uh, Frank Silva is down there. 
uh, looking all Bobby, doing the crazy smile, doing grimacing with the long hair, uh, lighting candles, doing something spooky. <laughs> and he just goes like, yes, that's right. It was me. I did it. Ha ha. Boogity boo. Ah. And um, Mike shows up gun in his single hand shoots Bob and goes like the cycle is complete everything's okay now <laughs> then Akota shows up that's like 25 years later and they do this like weird dream sequence to wrap everything up and have like the cousin ghost Laura Palmer just kind of wrap everything up with uh, the dwarf man and that's why in that dream sequence you know, Kyle MacLachlan, Agent Cooper, is weirdly aged up for no reason. Yeah, it's yeah. because it was supposed to be this like 2001: A Space Odyssey, like ending loud Deus Ex Machina thing to wrap everything up. It's interesting watching because for the show, I've been watching the old one and the new one like simultaneously. So it's <laughs> it's cool because I've been able to see different like parallels in them, back and forth. Like you know odes to the old one and the new one but it was very interesting to watch the old man makeup on Kyle McLaughlin compared to how he actually looked as old man uh-huh, it's very uh-huh. different it's cause it's yeah, just like yeah, oh yeah. body's age weird like his mouth got longer <laughs> for some reason I don't know <laughs> yeah yeah right it's, you never actually can pull it off like exactly how they cause you never know what weird part of your body is gonna, gonna droop. grow in a weird yeah. way yeah so uh, Fro- uh, Frost had this, this this quote to say, I think sums up a lot of uh, the, what, why Twin Peaks is so great. We didn't approach it as a television show. Remember that we were coming out of a decade in which the tone of major television was set by shows like Dallas, shows that David and I wouldn't be caught dead watching. It felt like we'd been led into the big machine inside a Trojan horse, and that seemed all the more reason to make Twin Peaks as strange and subversive as we possibly could, which I absolutely love. So Frost is Frost was the typist. Lynch was like, I can't type. Lynch would just lay on a couch, almost like he was in therapy, just bouncing around ideas with Frost, teaching Lynch how to build plot around commercial breaks for television, how to write for television. Also, uh, Lynch can't really type. <laughs> So he didn't. Yeah, so he really just can't. <laughs> yeah. He was like, yeah, he's just like, I can't do it. So you have to do it, which I've, I've always been the Mark Frost in that situation, by the way. Having uh, been both, being the David Lynch is so great. Yeah. So much better. It's so much being better. Being the loose cannon artist, you're like, make everything work around me, please. But if you're genius enough, you can. Instead of being the guy who actually has to fit there and just be like, so wait, how do they get here? <laughs> like, why are they in this room? Just be like, no, it's like a dinosaur room. I don't know. Figure it out. I will say the the Mark Frost role. The good thing is you always get your shit in, or you always yeah. go like, "Yeah, I'm totally typing your dumb idea <laughs> yeah, right yeah. now," and then you don't type it. You just like hope that they forget, which happens all the but, time. Yeah, uh, they do forget immediately. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think it's like the most brilliant thing ever that they could not be bothered to remember it the next day. <laughs> Either way, let's talk about this cast. I, I'm not going to talk about every member of the cast. It's too insane. This is a massive cast. I've got a few highlights to talk about. But I just, there's so many good people in this show. And it's, I hate that I can't spend time on all of them. But I also feel like there's so many other important things to hit. And it just would be impossible. It would have its own episode, just the cast of Twin Peaks. But either way, I love this quote. Casting adhered to a typically Lynchian anti-process. Dana Ashbrook was required to stand on the roof and bark like a dog, a role he later reprised as a jail-bound Bobby Briggs. Richard Boehmer and Russ Tamblin were cast as Ben Horn and Lawrence Jacoby simply because it tickled David to see the former arch enemies of West Side Story reunited on screen. (laughs) (laughs) 
Lynch said, I don't ever make them audition or read a scene. I feel that would be unfair because they don't really know what I want. So I like to look at pictures first and then either meet them or have them videotaped speaking. That's what I go on, hearing their voice and having them just talk about whatever. And I get a feeling from that. I have never had an audition like that. I wish I could have an audition like that. Yeah, uh, our friend Eve actually auditioned for him for the new one. Mm. And uh, he, yeah, she said he just like talked to her and kind of. Wow. Just had a convo. That was the audition. Wow. I would I would fucking love that yeah. if that was auditioning. By the way, can we please do that? Love it. Can we please? Um, Joan Chen, who played the uh, mm. widowed uh, Josie Packard, the owner of the lumber mill, met uh, David Lynch at one point, and he completely rewrote the role for yeah. her. That was supposed to be Isabella Rossellina, yeah. Rossellini, who dropped out. Yeah, mm. yeah. It's a weird, uh, in a weird thing of uh, casting, um, Jack Nance, uh, who was the star of Eraserhead, uh, played mm-hmm. the fisherman Pete, mm-hmm. uh, and he named, and the log lady was his uh, form ex-wife, Catherine Coulson, who they were together during the filming of Eraserhead, mm. and so uh, it was definitely like a weird kind of just a joke to have Piper Laurie, who again... Lynch cast because he remembered her from the Mod Squad and just liked having all this like <laughs> weird old media figures in his, in his show. Uh, named her Catherine just so he could hear Jack Nance complain to Catherine in an awkward marriage again. <laughs> <laughs> I know he did put him in another awkward marriage. It's so rude. <laughs> They're just he's great at it. So I want to talk about Kyle McLaughlin, of course, who plays <sighs> Agent Cooper. Kyle started acting in a youth theater program in his home state of Washington and then pursued drama in college. His first film role was as Paul Atreides, the protagonist of Dune. You ever heard of Dune, Natalie? Dune. <laughs> Dune. Mm. I black out and when I hear it's weird when I hear that word, I just my my mind shuts down. Where, where, what were we just talking about? <laughs> well, that is a movie d- directed by David Lynch and Paul Atreides is a name you may have heard before. That is the protagonist of that book and film. And, and Here is the mind killer, John Gabar! <laughs> uh, it was directed by David Lynch in 1984 and who caught the eye of a casting agent for the picture while performing on stage in Moliere's Tartuffe, a play I did in middle school, I believe, or maybe high school. And they really hit it off. And David Lynch just loved him in screen tests and it just went from there. He had trouble well, getting work. it kind of helps that... Uh, he looks like a young David Lynch. <laughs> like he he's does. very much an avatar. He does for Lynch when he's directing him. And uh, Laura Dern spoke about meeting them both because he was trying to figure out if there's like a, a chemistry between the people. And so they, she met with Kyle and David at the Bob's Big Boy that David Lynch frequented for years which is still there which is near my house hell yeah um i know so fucking cool and she said she sat with them and david lynch was drawing on his placemat and kyle was drawing in pictures in his ketchup and they were just (laughs) both sitting there silently like making pictures and she was just like i'm obsessed with both of you (laughs) and i can see why they work together because they're very similar yeah, so many directors like their their default protagonist is just themselves, but handsomer. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. right. David Lynch just took one look at Kyle MacLachlan and was like, "Oh my god, my dream, me, but with a fifteen inch 
forward chin. Yeah, totally. But David <laughs> Lynch is also chin on this guy. David Lynch is handsome. He's very, very handsome man, except for his teeth. Really. <laughs> so uh, he goes on to play Jeffrey Beaumont in Blue Velvet, and this ends up getting him Agent Cooper after that. And the character's name came from the infamous plane hijacker, D.B. Cooper, Mm -hmm. along with the physical traits like his black slicked back hair. D.B., look up the case of D.B. Cooper. By the way, it's fascinating. It's so cool. This airplane hijack. It's like one of the best like unsolved mysteries of... of of our time. Cooper is said to be the alter ego of Lynch... There you go. There you have it. Uh, including his love of coffee, pie, and donuts. Also, Lynch uses a tape recorder to work out movie ideas. And that's where the whole Diane thing mm-hmm. came from, which is one of my favorite elements of the whole Agent Cooper thing. It's an amazing way to make him like a classic noir hero. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the the investigator narrating the day's proceedings. But in the way that Cooper is such a great like hero character makes him such a dork about it because he's just like in a little tape recorder just he all the scenes where he's just playing with a calculator because it's the early 90s and that's a thing nerds do (laughs) is just i remember being that nerdy and just like literally just hitting buttons on a calculator because it it makes fun beep noises and yeah and he's such a i think an important part of that show because he brings a lightness to like he shouldn't be as happy as he is and and as pleasant as he is because he's dealing with this like horrible crime but he just has he brings like a levity to it that really yeah. makes it pleasurable yeah absolutely it's, agreed. it's really I, we're gonna keep talking cooper i really oh, think I it's cooper. one of the standout things that makes the show great mm-hmm. like uh just so much empathy and openness to everything he is unfazed by everything that happens and instead of making him like a stern straight man, it makes him like a lovable like friend to everybody. Mm-hmm. He cares about everyone. Um, and I want to kiss you know, him. <laughs> even basic shit like, you know, uh, uh, D- uh, Sheriff Harry S. Truman uh, being like, oh, we call her the log lady. And he always calls her Margaret. Like stuff <laughs> like, you know, if anyone has a problem, he will drop everything and listen to what they have to hear. He cares mm-hmm. And he has all that fun woogity woo mystical stuff behind yeah. it, like the Tibetan rock throwing. Yeah. So apparently, <laughs> apparently that's the Mike Frost in him because he apparently is an amalgamation of Lynch and Frost. And Frost has a uh, has a big attention to details, a fascination with puns, and also a fascination with strange philosophies. So that actually all is the Mike Frost element. It's like a it's like what's it called the I Ching. The thing, yeah, it's, it's similar to that too. That that idea of like throwing down, looking for signs and like rocks and stones and stuff. But yeah, uh-huh. no, it's funny because he is this very like you you would think he's sort of a straight laced detective guy, but then he's just using all these mystical dreams and, and dream, stuff, yeah. and, and going off of dreams, yeah, and just being like, I had this dream, and now I know who solved it. I just have to decode the dream, yeah. and that does really make it so fun because it's such a contrast to him being this very professional G-man. agent. Yeah. yeah. And also the police force just leans into it without really any question. They're like, okay, <laughs> all right, we'll try to figure oh, this out with you. The bromance. The bromance oh, yeah. is so hard and it is so endearing. It is. Yeah. I love it. I also wanted to highlight Laura Flynn Boyle, who plays Donna Hayward. She did a lot of supporting role work in film and television until her lead role in Poltergeist 3. Yeah, she was in Poltergeist 3, one of my favorite horror movies. 
but it was Twin Peaks that broke her career. Boyle said, and I, I believe I said this quote on our Wayne's World episode on pop history, by the way. <laughs> Boyle said, Twin Peaks gave me everything I have as an actor. It put me where I am now because it was so beautifully soulful. And I think I just brought out the best of the actors. There was no acting going on. We were living on Twin Peaks. It, made, it gave me my career. And uh, also, she totally ends up getting up with Mr. Cl- Kyle McLaughlin during this time. Ooh, I watched time. that tape. It's a bit of a fun sexual sort of imagery for you. Hold uh, on, I'm just receiving word that he was 30 and she was 19. Cancel. Oh, no. No. Cancel. Well, at least it was legal. Oh, no. Suck shit, you beautiful 90 stars. He broke up with her and then she tried to give him a gun rack and um, <laughs> he wasn't into it. And thus, Stacy was born. There you go. <laughs> Also, oh my God, I have such a, I'm going to say, attraction and not make it too lascivious for uh, Sherilyn Finn, who plays Audrey Horn. Macha, macha, magacha. She did a bunch of B movies early on. Uh, and uh, such as 1986, the 1986 skater film Thrashin, and had a hard time getting out of this exploitation film market where, quote, directors tried to convince me to appear naked after the contract was signed. She eventually decided to take control of her career and stop letting people push her into things she didn't want to, to do, yes. which is when she was finally cast as Audrey Horn. Finn said, Audrey's been great for me. She has brought out a side of me that's more mischievous and fun that I had, susp- uh, that I had suppressed trying to be an adult. She has made it okay to use the power one has as a woman to be manipulative at times, to be precocious. She goes after what she wants vehemently, and she takes it. I think that's really admirable. I love that about her. I like how she's a chain smoker with bipolar disorder. That's hot. That's fun. <laughs> um, yeah, and that really also, obviously, Lynch uses nude women all the time. And, and filmmakers coming up, please remember, you don't have to trick people into being naked. There are plenty of people who are, like, super down for it. So just <laughs> talk to them beforehand and tell them I want to do nudity in this scene or in this character. And if they don't want to, then it's not the right part for them. And that's fine. Don't fucking trick them. It's gross. That's my PSA for everybody out there. I I could not agree with you more. Look, there's too many actors to talk about. Michael Antkeen is fantastic as the sheriff. Uh, Matchin Amick as Shelley Johnson, the the young diner waitress. She read for Donna. Mm. uh, The Matchin Amick. I can't pronounce that very Scandinavian name. I think Amchik. I think Jürgen Björgen. Who knows? Yes. Um, And she had such a good camera test. That like they were like, oh, this is an ingenue. This is an it girl. We'll figure something out for yeah, her because they wrote the part it's, for her. There's a famous Rolling Stone cover with Sherilyn uh, Fenn, Larvin Boyle and Jürgen Björgen Amchik. And like it just just the most swing 90s yeah. sexy young yes. actress thing in the world. Yep, totally. I was just looking at that. Uh, Peggy Lipton as the owner of the Double R Diner. She was big in the 60s on shows like the Mod Squad, stuff like that. Just it just the list goes on and on. And forgive me if I didn't talk about your favorite actor, but we've got to get into it. The actual making of Twin Peaks. Oh, wait, can I? Oh, real quick with the character. Oh, sure. Big Eddie Nadine. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. They're obviously fantastic on that uh, on Twin Peaks. But if you're a horror fan, um, if you've ever seen the movie, The People Under the Stairs, they Ooh. reprise their coupledom in that movie, which is it's a great, weird fun 80s horror movie or maybe early no it's early 90s because it's after Twin Peaks so they're they're basically a, a couple again in that movie <laughs> and it, they play another weird couple but it's a like a darker version of 
them. Yeah. One other casting story I definitely want to get out is uh, Leo Johnson, who was the heavy in the oh, first yeah, season. Oh, yeah, Leo, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, is uh, an actor named Eric DeRay, who was just helping out his mom, who is the casting agent for this uh, show. And after the role kept, like, they couldn't find someone, someone just threw out there, like, hey, what if Eric did it? And that was his first big acting role. He's terrifying in it, the show. Because, well, he looks he looks like Tim Heidecker. He looks like he's about to be just, like, lean over and be like, it's free real estate. And But he just has so much fucking domestic abuser menace. Yeah. And... He's even scarier when he goes into a coma. I know. It's ter- it really, he's very good in the part. Or he's just a mean man. He's just being himself. I think it's bal- It's the balding with a ponytail energy that lets anyone know that they're a wild card capable of anything. That's right. <laughs> so the filming is done in North Bend, Washington, during a particularly rough winter that led to postponements of shoots on the reg. It was done, as we said, in a budget of $4 million. Lynch liked to keep on-set accidents in his films, such as man- manufacturing fluorescent lights in the c- coroner's office and things like that, like stuff breaking down. But the best example, of course, we, we mentioned it earlier, the creation of Bob, the interdimensional being who possesses people and commits terrible acts of violence against his victims so that he can feast on their despair. And this was actually played by set dresser Frank Silva who accidentally trapped himself in this on the set for Laura's room while moving furniture, and Lynch just likes the I- image of that, the idea of that. So he films Silva hunched over and looking through the bed frame of Laura's bed with no plan to use it. But later, Silva is... Ac- but by the way, first of all, I just love that he sets up a shot and films it. He has no at all thought to yeah, use well, it. He's just it. Like, we'll see if we'll use it. Because <laughs> he's a painter. Because he's yeah. a painter, and it really is just about... Finding that evocative imagery. And yeah. Just, like, yeah. Also being that uh, that actor or set designer at the time um, being like somebody coming up to you and going, oh, my God, you look like a ghoul. Can I maybe <laughs> use you? In this? You're so up. Op- I'm upset looking at you. That's amazing. Can I shoot you as a, a devil? You're like, I guess. <laughs> There's an onset anecdote during the shooting of this pilot slash first episode where uh, Ronette, Bob's other victim who managed to escape. Uh, is spooked by dis- by Silva as just as she's <laughs> shooting her scene outdoors. And she's like, ah, who the fuck is that? And Lynch just goes, oh, that's the bad guy. <laughs> Later, Silva is accidentally caught on camera in the mirror during the filming of Sarah Palmer, having a vision in the final moments of the pilot and loves the take so much even with the gaff, so he essentially was like, "That was the perfect take. I love it." They were like, "There's a problem. You can see Silva in the in the mirror," and he's like, "Actually, that's perfect." And decides to make that's when he decides to make Silva as Bob this mystical antagonist. And Silva was an actor too. Like I think he was mm-hmm. a, a he was pursuing acting while he was working on set, and um, uh-huh. he had, unfortunately he passed away really young. So I don't know if he would have continued on to do a lot of stuff, but he didn't hmm. really appear very much, I don't think, otherwise. He was... I Lexi was so fucking scared of just <laughs> the Lexi sight of How's Lexi handling him. Twin Peaks? Is she into it? She was, she was into it, except for it legitimately freaked her out. And she doesn't have a great tolerance for horror yeah and she so she literally had to step up we like stopped watching it for it for a period of time just because she was like it just scares the shit out of me (laughs) 
I just can't deal with this right now. And he so, also has the unhinged energy of like a less experienced actor who's told to just go nuts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> he just scared the fuck out of her, man. Like she couldn't handle it. It was so funny. And it's literally, by the way, the most innocent of scary things. It's just this guy being like, yeah, you know what I mean? He's not like killing, he's not like cutting anyone open. But that's like such a lynch thing to do where he's just yeah. showing you a random image and you're like, I hate this and I'm not sure why, Yeah, but I'm going to have a nightmare about it later. I mean, the, the, the lynch trick really is the fact that we're so trained by TV and movies that like, if the director is showing you something, that means there's a reason yeah. But he never gives you a reason. So now you're just stuck in this void of meaning and whatever fucked up jigsaw puzzle you've arranged to make those images stick is what like haunts you because it's literally made from your own yes. disparate pieces. And he um, famously does not like to explain his stories. He actually like will get mad when people ask him in interviews or he's like, I'm not here to like hand feed you the story of what I've made. I've made this and then you decide what it is, which I think is cool. Yeah, for sure. Also, I kind of made it up as I went along. Yeah. <laughs> so please stop trying to corner me. Stop asking me all these questions about it. And we'll get into more of this with part two, but this, I mean, honestly, it's that approach that creates this internet groundswell. And it was one of the first times, uh, uh, you know, the internet was becoming the internet when this show was a thing. So it really was one of the first fan driven constant speculation fan site forums action that that we would be so used to now with with a tv show like well they had a fan site forum oh yeah it was usenet we're talking like text usenet yeah it was crazy and really created we'll get into it next week but it really created the like this was the first show people were like binging and then going onto a forum and being like oh my god i just rewatched the whole thing again because i have the tapes and um, okay, I'm also like really high, but whatever. And this X Y Z, and now I think this means this. And it was like there, the first I watched of that. A, a special about people would like gather and have like TV parties because you know it was yeah. different watching content back then. And there was just several people on the the documentary that were just a little extra, being like. I don't actually own a television, so this is the only TV show I watch because I am very smart. Did you watch that Minnesota Public Access thing? Oh, yeah, I did watch that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's so good. You can go yeah. on YouTube right now, but it's like a compl- in its entirety a Minnesota PBS, you know, public television special where they got Mark Frost via, you know, satellite interview and they just go to like local, uh, I don't know, what's the Twin Cities area like nerds yeah. and have their thoughts on That's the show awesome. as it was being aired, like in real time. And it is a perfect snapshot of that way early nineties. Yeah. Like, and that one lady on it too, who was taking notes, like she had like 10 pages of notes for each episode <laughs> would like rewind it and watch it again. Amazing. I also feel very fortunate watching it now because it's in HD on Netflix because yeah. yeah. it was all like shot on film, yeah. not on yeah. tape. And so I can actually pause and see what the tarot cards on the table are laid out yeah. as. Mm. I can actually see what that sign is. I can actually figure out where the owls are and who's looking at what. Whereas in the VHS era, that was you, you were just looking at blurry messes being yeah. like, I think that's an owl. Well, yeah. I think that's an <laughs> and owl. That, I mean, that also just is a testament to the level of detail they put into a medium they didn't know was going to be possible at any point. Like they right. put so much work into something that wasn't going to be experienced that way at the time. So that's mm-hmm, really cool. Mm-hmm. And why it, I think why it still holds up. We're almost an hour in and we 
kind of got through the pilot. Whoops. We'll get Whoops. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. All right, let's talk about the score. Another thing that super holds up, I feel like, done by Angelo Badalamenti, who Lynch first worked with on Blue Velvet. Lynch said, I love this process. This is Lynch's process with this guy. I sit next to him and I talk to him and he plays what I say. And then I adjust it if it's not going a certain way. And he'll keep playing. And in a very short amount of time, he's playing the thing that's marrying to the ideas. So Lynch wanted music that expressed moods like sadness, passion, tenderness, then also some, quote, cool, jazzy stuff. And I think we all know the cool, jazzy stuff uh, moments are so funny. And lastly, quote, some music that's going to tear the hearts out of people. Lynch said, this is what Lynch says when he says, I, I talk to him and he plays what I say. This, this is a, an example. It's dead of night. We're in a dark wood. There's a full moon out. There are sycamore trees that are gently swaying in the soft wind. There's an owl that ominously appears on the tree. So, Angelo, give me some of this mood. Now, Angelo... From behind that tree, there's a beautiful, troubled, lonely teenage girl. She appears and she starts walking very slowly with tears in her eyes towards the camera. And that's when Angelo changes from a minor key to a major key. And you can hear the moment in that opening theme when that happens, when it goes that way, mm. right? This, mm-hmm. this is Laura's theme, that dun, yeah. dun. Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, or yeah, Laura's theme. We'll yeah, just yeah. play a little bit of uh, Laura's yeah, theme you so you can hear that like big key change. on the show everything from the uh you know nightclub songs that were like brought in during different parts of the the series to the theme song to all the you know the love themes very soap opera-y yes like the the way that it made soap opera plots elevated so Mm -hmm. because uh in you know it was i tvs at tv shows at the time it was either a sitcom or an anthology show or a procedural where like at the end it was pretty much wrapped up but soap operas Mm -hmm did long arcs like nobody's business. And so, like, they even had, like, in the first season, they were really heavy-handed about this. They would have characters turn on Invitation to Love, a fictional soap opera, whenever a big, (laughs) wrought 
heavy plot character interaction melodramatic moment was going to happen. <laughs> and soap operas also had those big sweeping scores behind them to keep things moving along. Yeah, and I think that's why uh, it really did well at the beginning because it got sort of the art crowd, but it also attracted people who were interested in the drama of the mystery. But you can watch that show and not really care about that side of it and still have a lot of it's shit going on. the preferable way yeah, to watch definitely. it. definitely. <laughs> the soundtrack did Gangbusters, uh, the theme mm. song, and ended up becoming a radio hit. The soundtrack was a bestseller in America and Japan. Angelo actually uh, tells a story about... Um, he after the first season aired, he got invited to perf- uh, record at Abbey Road with Paul McCartney <laughs> uh, in order to help him with a, a track he was working on that he quote unquote, that McCartney wanted that jazzy Twin Peaks vibe on. Cool. <laughs> and while there, McCartney told a story about how he knew he had to invite him over when he was doing a concert and the Queen of England went into his dressing room and told him that she would have to miss the show because she had to go home and watch Twin Peaks. Oh, damn. <laughs> that's awesome. That's, that's lit. You get the queen. <laughs> we got the queen on board. Yeah. So so on the show getting picked up, Lynch said, it was sort of our clever little design. They'll pick us up for six, but we won't tell them who killed Laura. Then they'll have to pick us up for a second season. Neither Lynch nor Frost wanted to resolve the murder, as it was, according to Lynch, quote, killing the goose that laid the golden eggs. It was network executive Bob Iger who championed the pilot, even though the other executives weren't into it. And after a bit of a fight, convinced ABC to buy seven episodes at $1.1 million apiece. And that is what brings us to our first season. Yes, we're an hour into the show. We're just getting to the first season. You might know Bob Iger's name from the fact that he ran the Walt Disney Company during the exact period where they conquered literally all of American culture. Yes. So the in the first season, uh, it consists of eight total episodes airing from April 8th to May 23rd, 1990. The first three episodes were written by Frost and Lynch, with Lynch directing the first and third. Frost directed the season finale uh, of the whole thing, which is a great finale. And that first, that first season is just like, Mwah, just mm-hmm. excellent. Fantastic. We'll get to the second season, why it fell apart. But there's definitely a few things to talk about. We already mentioned the Tibetan method or the Tibet method, but this is the non-logical spiritual investigation method used by Cooper. It was inspired by Lynch when he met the Dalai Lama. Lynch said, I went to this place in Hollywood where I met the Dalai Lama and I got fired up about the plight of the Tibetan people. And I told Mark, we've got to do something. And that whole scene developed out of meeting the Dalai Lama. And then it added another layer to Cooper, which I agree. Mm -hmm. Now, let's get into, I still, I have read about it. I I kind of conceive it, but it's still... Makes my brain hurt thinking about how they filmed the Red Room back back Oh, I do not. I you're yeah. Get into this. Okay, so the third episode contains one of the most notable moments in the series: the dream sequence Cooper has involving a Red Room, Laura Palmer, and a dwarf that speaks to him about Laura's death with uh, their dialogue reversed. The concept came to Lynch in a vision sometime after he met the actor Mike Anderson, who plays the dwarf, for a project that didn't happen called Ronnie Rocket. And while working on the alternate ending for the pilot and struggling to finish it, quote, this is from Lynch, one night at about 6.37 p.m. (laughs) 6.37 p.m. I love David Lynch. (laughs) One night at about 6.37 p.m. in the evening, I remember it was very warm. Dwayne Dunham and his assistant Brian Burden and I were leaving for the day. We were out in the parking lot and I was leaning against a car. 
the front of me was leaning against the very warm car. My hands were on the roof and the metal was very hot. The red room scene leapt into my mind. Little Mike was there and he was speaking backwards. And that is that is all. It was just an image that popped in his in his brain while they were struggling to come up with an ending. Back in 1971, while working with regular collaborator and sound designer Alan Splett, who he did like, I think, I believe, Race Red and Blue Velvet, yada, 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 Lynch asked him to record him saying, I want pencils, but he learned how to say it phonetically backwards, and then had Splett reverse it to get his, this odd-sounding effect. So he's not saying the word backwards, yeah. like hold, Holden is, you know, Nedla. He's saying, like, uh, I don't even know how to do it. I don't know how to say it phonetically. Didn't did know. There's something about the phrase "I want pencils" that actually will sound pretty much the same backwards and forwards in a weird way. It just has an odd effect to it that it comes off as. So that's how they're getting that effect. Again, though, for Laura Palmer, the actress who played Laura Palmer, for the the guy who played the dwarf, uh, Mike Anderson. Oddly enough, in interviews, Mike Anderson says that he used to speak backwards as part of a secret language what? with one of his best friends, so he <laughs> took to it quite easily. Oh, okay, because they had to learn the whole thing backwards, and these are long takes. Yeah. They had to act the whole thing backwards. Yeah, there's a lot of backwards talk scenes throughout the whole series. It breaks Not only my that, brain. But- they this this wasn't again like I said this was filmed it wasn't taped and you can't like you can't their movie cameras don't have a sh- film in reverse option uh-huh. so the uh, director of photography actually had to like jerry rig the camera the like the this bulky film camera so that it could film upside down so they could put the reels in the other way. <laughs> and like he had to reattach the lens like without a proper adapter and it kept breaking down but like they needed to film and do all this recording backwards so crazy so here is an explanation of the black lodge and the whole connection to alistair crowley's novel moonchild how many times have you read moonchild uh natalie <laughs> you're e- you're evil how many times have you uh... i'm more of a levain girl um, okay yeah <laughs> So, uh, yeah, this is by from reporter Anna Cafola. She wrote an article about Twin Peaks for Dazed. The Black Lodge, the red-veiled space filled with terrifying, screaming doppelgangers, demonic entities, and killer Bob, also pops up in occultist Aleister Crowley's novel Moonchild, which sees a war between the white and dark magicians over an unborn child in 1917. It's said that he taught his followers the occult law of reversal, which involved talking, walking, and thinking backwards for those who want fame or power. (laughs) Very interesting. Parts of the scene were shot entirely in reverse, as I just said, so that events could unfold in order while the reverse speech was being used. Meaning when someone spoke, they had to speak from end to beginning, learning their lines phonetically so it could be used, reversed, and form the scene. And also walk and all that. They'd have to like yes. do all their motions backwards. All of the movement. And the look of the Red Room is said to be inspired by the painting Seated Figure by Francis Bacon. Check out that painting. It definitely seems to be so. It is a spooky guy sitting in a chair with red drapes behind him. <laughs> I love this, too. The one-armed man started out as just a small homage to The Fugitive. I yeah. Get- no, okay, so that's the thing is that's the cruel joke of the show is if you again we watch the Minnesota thing, there were people pouring over every frame of this thing trying to piece together the puzzle when literally uh Lynch and Frost were just working at the jigsaw tossing new pieces on as they were going. There right. was never anything Yeah, and Lynch like you said before, Lynch really works in like visions and stuff. Yeah. Because of not he doesn't do it. He says he doesn't do it during TM, but uh mm. 
it's how it helps engage him into like these weird visuals. So a lot of times he doesn't even know what he's going to do. Uh, TM, by the way, transcendental meditation. David Lynch practices it, which I, every I day. also do as, as well. You do. Yeah. I should talk to you about it because I do meditate. I have done meditation, but I'm curious about TM specifically. Way better than mindfulness. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I want to check. I want to check it out. So okay, this is how much they're winging it. Um, the guy who played the one-armed man, when it was time to first film uh, for the fake ending. There is a scene where it says, and then the one-armed man, like, says the poem. He, you know, they're about to film the scene, and the actor goes up to uh, David Lynch and is like, uh, so what's the poem? And David Lynch is like, what? And it's like, there's no poem in the script. And David Lynch has to, like, run away with a notebook for a couple of minutes. <laughs> and, like, that's the iconic fucking, yeah, through like, the darkness of future past, the right. magician longs to see one chance out between two worlds. Fire. Fire. Walk. With me. He had to make that up on the fly while they were filming, and that's like the linchpin for the fucking lore of this magical universe. The David linchpin. <laughs> the David linchpin. <laughs> oh, Mersey Dotes and Dozy Dotes and Right. So they did say the magicians and the two worlds referenced are also thought to be a reference to the Moonchild by Aleister Crowley. It depicts the two factions of magicians, the whole White Lodge and the Black Lodge, fighting to impregnate a virgin with the moon child. And depending on who won the struggle, the child would either be the savior or the antichrist. So Uh, I will say my beautiful fiance, Marie, amateur witch lady, would be uh, (laughs) very uh, upset if I didn't bring this out, that the magician as... uh, in, as interpreted in the tarot deck and as famously attributed to Agent Cooper is associated with uh, the character who points towards both heaven and earth and acts as a bridge and revealing the truth that can otherwise not be seen. And so Agent Cooper is the magician. So as we said, the finale directed by Mark Frost, which ends with Agent Cooper, spoiler alert, maybe skip five seconds if you really want to not know this. Agent Cooper gets shot it, it, it it's this big cliffhanger and it's viewed by 22% of its available audience and made the project a phenomenon and an absolute cult hit and just this a perfect water cooler show because people are constantly showing up the next day and just being like let's talk about last <laughs> night's ep so uh yeah and then later of course Seinfeld would take it over or whatever and it'd be like oh the, remember the Chinese restaurant either way uh, TV critics lauded it as something that would change television forever, which is still true to this day. People talk about it just forever changed every the whole landscape and even led The New Yorker to break its snooty seven year streak of no TV reviews just to talk about and praise the series. And yeah, its snooty patooties really loved yeah, this whatever. show. Yeah, whatever, New Yorker. I'll never write for you. Such a phenomenon, such a radical shift in the creative trajectory of American television. Such a sexy and beloved cast. So many cool uh, things. Surely this show will run forever. (laughs) This season two airs from September 30th to 1990 uh, to June 10th, 1991 for 22 episodes and includes the reveal of who killed Laura Palmer. Much to the chagrin of David Lynch and Mike Frost. They directed four of the episodes, and Frost wrote three of them, including the finale. The season suffered due to network and fan pressure to reveal who killed Laura Palmer, which Lynch and Frost finally caved on halfway through the season. A little late, a little past halfway. I think it was episode, like, 15, right? Um, this changes I don't think the... it was that far in, because she... Yeah. The, the plot line changes 
I think mid-season. Yeah, maybe you're right. Yeah, it's yeah. about mid-season. It's if it's uh, eight episodes. If you're counting eight episodes for the first season, the big reveal of uh, who has been inhabited by evil dimension being Bob is revealed at around episode. It's basically seven, eight, nine of season two. Yeah is when it's that kind of plays out. And then the whole show changes direction. And the second half of the season, this which leads to a ratings decline and eventually a, ca- a cancellation with a cliffhanger. Supposedly, it was Bob Iger himself, Mr. Yes. Brilliant uh, CEO, who kept hammering on uh, Frost and Lynch to reveal the killer, quote-unquote. And in his uh, biography, his autobiography or memoir or whatever, he actually admits that that was a mistake. That like he just had too many old TV instincts and, and thought the that- only mistake he's ever made. <laughs> <laughs> he said, "Looking looking back now, I'm not convinced I was right. I was applying a more traditional television approach to the storytelling, Absolutely. and David David may have been ahead of his time." Deep down, I felt David was frustrating the audience, but it may well be that the de- my demands for an answer to the question of who killed Laura Palmer threw the show into another kind of narrative disarray. David might have been right all along. Oh, maybe. Maybe he was. <laughs> Lynch said, we're not going to solve the murder for a long time. They, this they did not like. They did not like that. And they forced us to, you know, get to Laura's killer. It wasn't really all their fault. People just got a bug in them that they wanted to know who killed Laura Palmer, calling out for it. And one thing led to another, and the pressure was just so great that the murder uh, that the murder mystery couldn't be just a background thing anymore. Which it should have been. It should yeah. have been the background story. But, but here's the thing. the It was a one-two punch of the incredibly charming, surrealist soap opera of a off-kilter, isolated town is the true reason to love it. Mm-hmm. Like the it's yeah. the it's watching these characters and watching them bump up against each other and and how they pursue their own goals and how they like manipulate and like work against and then team up with each other is the true thing. But that big mystery, it's just the the you know, everything from Lost to Battlestar Galactica, people need to know what's in the box. It got during the 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 initial wave of speculation as the show was airing. It would. It became known that Russian President Mikhail Gorbachev was a fan of the show, <laughs> and God. through back-channel donation, like uh, rigmarole, the George H. W. Bush administration actually tried to get Aaron Spelling Productions to reveal the killer to the U.S. government because it thought it would be valuable diplomatic bargaining. Chips. Whoa, Jesus Christ! But that see, audiences don't really want the answer. They say they want it, right. but they're they always bummed they out. They're always irritated. It's not yeah. really. It's anticlimactic to know. It's like you. I'd rather have this story weaved for me for longer. Yeah, and I could have waited. I could have waited till a third season or whatever to get that in. Like I'd, I'd extending out that mystery, and of course. After the 15th episode There aired. is a fucked up moment uh, in the second season before the killer is revealed that like they ca- one of the characters casually just uh, says that it's within the show's narrative. It had only been 12 days since Laura Palmer's body was found. <laughs> <laughs> but in real time, this would have been like two plus years of fans just like screaming <laughs> for an answer. So after the 15th episode aired, they started suffering a ratings decline, and ABC eventually suspends the show from its lineup with six episodes left in the season to air at an unspecified date. Of course, uh, we've talked about this in in episodes past. There's a letter-writing campaign ensued by superfans, some of which formed Coop, 
Citizen Opposed to the Offing of Peaks, C-O-O-P. <laughs> and it was actually Lynch himself who was like, the only people who are going to save this are you guys, like are the viewers. At this yeah, you point. went on Letterman. Yeah. Pleaded to the audience um, to write in. And the show then trickles out first on Thursday nights for four episodes, then it goes on another hiatus, and then they release the final two episodes. Another uh, element attributed to the show falling apart, apparently, was that after the murder was solved, they were supposed to focus on the relationship between Audrey Horn and Dale Cooper, but apparently Lara Flynn Boyle disapproved of the on-screen relationship, so Kyle MacLachlan and that that whole relationship is just dropped, and then they add Heather Graham, and they try to do a weird thing. Well, I'm thing. glad because she's in high school. Yeah, she I guess it was kind of weird. It's, it's very, so like, so Kyle MacLachlan said, you know, put his foot down as the marquee star and was like, no, it's not right. The character is in high school. She's too young for my character. But he was dating Lara Flynn yeah, Boyle, who was, was 19. 19, yeah. And Sherilyn Fenn was 24 at the time of filming. <laughs> and they got Heather Graham to replace him, replace as the new love interest kind of out of the blue. She was like Norma's sister mm-hmm. who just was like, hi, I'm here now. <laughs> And at the time, Heather Graham was even younger than Laura Flynn Boyle. Oh, she was? Yeah. They also threw in the new antagonist, Wyndham Earl, just like, which felt very tacked on. Well, also, Lynch kind of stepped back um, during the second season. He wasn't as involved because he was irritated that he couldn't really get all the things he wanted done. So he didn't really do a lot of, his creative side was really drastically pulled back on the second season. He was also distracted with Wild at Heart. As well, and he was working on post production of that during the second season, and was filming it during the first season. And he he felt that, but he felt the show had gotten so bad after he left, which I absolutely agree. I think there's one episode that's like a talent show or something that is so bad. That was the one that I was like, I don't know if I can keep watching this, and I know it gets. I love I love the characters in the place of Twin Peaks so much. I can watch all of it and be fine. But I I definitely can tell the difference, you know, in quality, but. I also love the Hail Mary pass that he tries one final time. So Lynch comes back to direct, Frost writes it, and it again ends with a cliffhanger. And it's another just like, if we just keep hitting him with cliffhangers, they have to keep pick us, picking us up, right? <laughs> but but the, canc- the show is actually canceled anyway, and that is all I've got. It's a real bummer of a cliffhanger. But I guess we shouldn't give the spoiler. Joke's on the network because it ended up being very helpful in the future. Yeah, absolutely, way, so. and and we're going to talk about Fire Walk with me as well as, oh my God, the return, Jake, Ooh. the return. I'm excited. I am excited. What's the episode, Natalie? Ooh, what's what? What's the crazy episode? What's the? It's like episode ten. Uh, oh, of the return. Uh, There's an episode in the return that you sort of build up to that is so batshit insane. Is this the one that involves orbs? Is this the one where orbs, <laughs> orbs feature are... prominently? It's hard. To, I think I know what you're talking about, but it's hard for me to gauge that because like, yeah. to me, it, it goes between surrealism and storyline between each episode so much that like, so I don't know, crazy. they're all crazy. It's so crazy. And I'm so excited to learn more about it because I've only witnessed it. And I can't even say I watched it. I, I, wit- I bore <laughs> witness to the return. <laughs> so I'm so interested to learn more about it. As well as Firewalk with me, which I also quite enjoyed. So Did Lexi watch Firewalk with me? I think so. I I obviously watched it, but I was um, going to put a Lexi warning on that one cuz I can't even really watch yeah, the end of that movie. That mo- that is a rough time that film. That is a rough one. Uh, before, uh, but, I, I yeah. just need one more gush. I just need like just a little bit more appreciation for like the moments, the characters. 
Uh, Natalie, what are what are some things from Twin Peaks, the first two seasons, that will always stick with you? I'm trying to pull like some of my favorite. I just love it all so much. Uh, oh, you know what? You know what's actually one of the most striking parts of the the show to me is um, all of the the scenes where they first find the other girl on the train tracks. Um, mm. That whole side plot line and that image itself is terrifying to me and learning that side of it like where they go to the train car and they they build up the whole firewalk with me like even at the beginning there um that stuff really sticks with me and it actually kind of harkens back to it makes me think of the the image that he thought he saw as a kid it almost like is he reliving Mm. this thing from his childhood through that character so i really liked that that part of it I've I've got one. I love the relationship, and we didn't even talk about these actors between uh, the actress Kimmy Robertson, who plays Lucy Moran, and is it uh, Harry Goaz, the the deputy? Sh- I can't remember which. The guy, Andy. Andy, yeah, d- d- deputy sheriff. Oh, we Andy. didn't even mention Lucy and Andy. And, and I love oh, I their know. relationship. Ugh. And they're so funny, but then things get really insane for their storyline, like really serious. And there's like these big emotions. You I can think say I, sperm. You can just say there's some sperm drama. There's some sperm drama. And, and it's just like so uh, I just love their relationship. Yeah. And I love those characters. Like You just fall in love with them as people and feel like, you know, that you've met them before. And I just absolutely love them. It definitely humanizes the town, too, because uh mm-hmm. They are such pure characters um, when there's like you find so many dark things out about so many of the characters and they are just like these pure, (laughs) sweet creatures. And so, yeah, they're very Mm -hmm. they're very needed, I think, in the in the story. And then and then I really want to highlight like uh, Dana Ashbrook as Bobby Briggs, who is just fantastic. Okay, so So I I did the the map and and the whole time I was watching being like. Bobby Briggs, he's the uh, captain of the football team, but he's also a ruffian. He's also a delinquent. He's also a drug dealing ne'er-do-well. And the whole series, he has so much fucking Nick Cage energy. He is a wild man, especially during the early episodes. And I looked at it, and like I'm like, why do I keep thinking Nick Cage? And I realized it's the barking. It's the fucking weird, like, rages. And then I realized that style of Nick Cage acting you associate with him because of Wild at Heart, which was filmed after Bobby Briggs, after uh, Twin Peaks started shooting. So, like, Bobby Briggs is the original fucked up crazy Nick Cage. Yeah, probably. I mean, he was the totally. originator, not yeah, the imitator. Totally. That actor, too, really uh, talks about how he loved playing that part because he's just such a dork. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, I got to be this, like, scary, mean football yeah. player guy. <laughs> so great. I um, also love the relationship between... um. Peggy and uh, Ed, like their mm-hmm. their their love affair, which carries into yes. the future as well, because it's a very sad mm. thing. But they, it's such an impactful relationship and like such a like unrequited love that uh, it really is fascinating to watch. And then it carries on into the newer ones too, which is really nice. And just the whole, and then I pat his eye patch. The storyline with them, uh, yeah. The story <laughs> that is, Big Ed tells is so is heartbreaking. Crazy. I was, I know. It, my jaw dropped. I could not believe that this show that had like weird giant alien clues, the SETI uh, radio telescope messages, like so much, and then just this like 
quiet little story and i was just like holy yeah totally and that's why it's like more fun to watch all that than just the murder it was like when you guys asked me my favorite moments i literally blacked out because there's so many different elements that i love (laughs) yes um but yes that whole side story and then the whole fucking aliens part of it yeah yeah it's just so good quick story the uh harry goes the guy who played uh deputy andy uh, found out that the series had been picked up because he was uh, moonlighting as a uh, private, co- as a driver for a, like, he literally picked up an ABC executive at the airport as part of his like side gig. And the executive was like, oh, hey, we picked up your show. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Oh, and just quick shout out to Deputy Hawk, the resident kick-ass Native American guy played by the incredibly named Michael Horse. Michael Horse. I know. It's so love great. It. You know, like, he's so fucking reliable. Mm-hmm. He's like a breath of fresh air whenever he's in <laughs> yes. the room. Because you're like, at least some, like, he's like a bedrock. You're just like, everything's going to be okay. Yeah, totally. Yeah. There's an anecdote that uh, he tells about uh, during the famous Tibetan rock throwing scene. Uh, he was holding a large cooking pot with a pair of oven mitts. And when he asked uh, Lynch... Hey, what's the deal with the oven mitts? He just replied, I thought it would be funny to see you wearing oven mitts. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you have it. On that note, I think we're going to conclude part one of Twin Peaks. Thank you so much for joining us, guys. And we are coming right back with the part two that's going to blow your brains out. Thank you so much for joining us, Natalie. Natalie, what would you like to plug? Of course, Page Seven's Pop History, uh, the show you host with me and Jackie on Page Seven. We do essentially this, but with bubbly pop stuff for the most part or also i don't, I don't know. know we it get really dark a lot it, goes- <laughs> <laughs> it does cross over quite a bit. it gets really dark a lot of times too but anyways anything else you'd like to, to plug before we go much like a david lynch movie uh <laughs> Uh, we look into like really bright topics that suddenly become very dark when you peer inside. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Show business. <laughs> See Britney Spears, uh, our three-parter at Britney Spears, for example. Um, yeah, thank you guys for having me. I am so happy to talk about this, and I can't wait to talk about the return. And uh, hell yeah, uh, I mean, in quarantine, really, I have nothing going on except podcasts. <laughs> so that, and you can follow me at the Natty Jean on all of that shit and we're also at page 7 LPN if you want to look at our funny little Instagrams and you can check us out on patreon.com forward slash whizbrew if you'd like to support us further just five bucks a month and you get a lot of bonus content every single week also also twitch.tv forward slash holdenators ho I do streams Monday Tuesday and Friday night check me out on there Jake Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Best Jake Young, and uh, you will hear all of my mind thoughts and my brain poops and uh, all just uh, the one photo a month of myself that I can stand posting. And always remember, never stop bruising and keep on whizzing. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, Go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Hey, Mom. First things first, thank you. It's my one-year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, Mom. Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. 
With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash.